what we're calling Building Belief and the Right Reading of Scripture. And the goal of this series is to kind of look again at uh, the Scripture, kind of anew, afresh, uh, and to try to develop a much better habit among us young people of appreciating what it has to say, and perhaps even before that, actually reading what it has to say. Uh, yeah. Um, I think we're calling it Building Belief and the Right Reading of Scripture. I totally stole right reading of Scripture from Ian Proven, and I told him so, and he seemed fine with it. Um, at least he didn't tell me not to. So, Because he wrote a book uh, just this last year called um, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. It's a very, very long, comprehensive survey of all of the different interpretations from um, the early apostles to the later apostles to the early church fathers all the way up into modern methods used today. And so if you're really, really, really interested in it, like at a graduate academic level, you're welcome to read that, uh, that book. Um, but if not, then hopefully you'll benefit from some of what we're going to try to do in this uh, sermon series. I do have to warn you, today's going to be a little teachy. It happens. I do it. I'm a, a professor too, so I teach. That's kind of my natural uh, bent. And, um, but we really don't want this sermon series to be teachy, like here are eight things you need to know and study and they don't make any sense, and here's deep systematic theology that you need to go memorize. We really want the sermon series to be preached in a way that's inspirational, that's challenging, uh, that reminds you of, you know, that this is something that God is doing and it's good news and not just the kind of dry study type stuff. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is, number one, by having other people speak who don't maybe necessarily have as much of a teaching bent as Leslie and I do. Um, and by the way, if that's any of you, we're pretty open around here about who can speak. And so if you've got something that's really laid on your heart, uh, maybe it's not a whole sermon. It's like uh, you and maybe two or three other people want to do something together as you've studied through the scriptures and you want to issue a kind of a challenge or a thought or an illustration. You're so welcome to do that. And you don't, it doesn't just have to be during this time. One of the things that we're going to start doing in the coming weeks is have a time where those of you who want to participate in our worship service and kind of help plan. We've done a lot of different kinds of things over the years. Um, is come over early on Sunday mornings, probably around 10 o'clock, maybe 9.45, and be a part of a discussion and a prayerful time discussing worship for the week the next week. And so that's something that we're going to try to do this semester uh, open up this building a little bit earlier, uh, which does cost more, by the way. So it's time to, you know, reach deeper into your pockets and give us more money. Um, yeah, it's always time for that, really. But uh, just kidding. We, uh, we will. We will be. Uh, this building has been a real blessing for us. It's beautiful. It accommodates us. There's no way we could fit this many people in the building that we were in. Uh, but also does cost somewhat uh, no, it's actually not quite, it's not that much more, and we're paying nowhere near what we ought to be paying for this building in terms of how beautiful it is and what a wonderful space it is. And so just kind of keep track of that, those of you particularly who are part of our, ch our core church. Uh, we will, in terms of future thinking, um, in the end of April, beginning of May, we'll take a special contribution since a lot of you go home over the summer. Our church sort of like splits in half. Um, and our goal for that is that our uh, expenses are basically all the same, you know, throughout the summer, but many of you are gone, and so uh, we'll do what we do, have done for the last couple of years. So you might be thinking about that, take an opportunity to save up some money for our special contribution in, uh, in May. Anyway, I say all that to say, we really want you to be involved, and the best way you can be involved in our worship and in our sermon series is by reading these scriptures each week, all right? 
Now, I posted the entire sermon series on our Facebook page. If you're not on our Facebook page, get on our Facebook page, and you know what's coming ahead of time. Uh, but I haven't updated that with scriptures yet, and part, part of the reason is because Leslie and I both have been sick. I'm actually kind of surprised to see so many people here. Uh, I figured more of us would be sick. Um, but uh, we've been sick, and so we haven't really kind of worked together for the last uh, week or so on these. But I promise you this week we'll get those scripture references out. And today I'm actually going to give you one uh, as homework for, uh, for next week, and that's going to be John 1, 1 through 18. And the goal in, in giving you these passages ahead of time is sort of twofold. One, so that you can actually come to our sermon with some previous knowledge of the text. So you have something that it's like, oh, I remember that in reading it so I can relate to what it is you're saying. Today's going to be a little bit more difficult because the text is long, there's a lot in it, um, but uh, it's really important that you have some kind of background even if that's just you read it beforehand. But the bigger issue always, as I see it, and we're going to do two classes this semester, one starting in about three weeks on study of the scripture and devotional reading of the scripture. And some have argued that those two don't need to be separated, sort of like the secular, you know, spiritual divide. The problem is that they are separated a lot in our mind and in our practice. And so whether they should or shouldn't be separated, we're going to separate them for uh, the purpose of teaching kind of some methods in both. So if some of you feel like, oh, hey, you're really study heavy, you really do a pretty good job of studying the scripture, but you don't feel like you know how to read devotionally, come to the devotional class. Some of you are like super devotional readers and you've got like, you know, a calendar devotional reading each day. When it comes to studying the scripture, you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was possible. Um, probably want to come to the study class, right? So we'll do studying first and then we'll do the devotional reading. And, uh, but that's the, the idea is that you're doing both of those throughout the week, okay? That you take whether it's your quiet time, whether it's your study time, whatever you call it, look at the scripture, try to study it some to figure out what, what are the basic ideas, who was the audience, who's the writer, what time frame does this kind of come down to. Uh, some of you are like already scrunching your nose up, like that's too hard. No, there are so many resources for that, all right? One of the best ones you can use is how to read the Bible for all it's worth, book by book. That's a really good one. It's cheap. It's probably like 50 cents now on Amazon. And it will tell you, like, what, it's not 50 cents on Amazon? Well, it's one of the same, how to read the Bible book by book, by the authors who wrote. How to, you guys know me. I don't do, you know, titles, really, or authors or any of that. I apologize. But you know what I mean. There's a book by book one. There's the how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And um, it might not be 50 cents, but back when half.com was in existence, uh, you could buy books for 50 cents. But now it's gone. So, all right. So. Do the devotional reading, do the study reading, particularly if you have a challenge in one area or the other. Try your best this week to do that with the text and sort of see where, uh, where God leads you. All right? That's enough of that. So um, many of you know uh, that I am sort of the church mechanic here. Uh, possibly you've had way more interaction with me as a mechanic than you have as a pastor. So I don't know what that means exactly, but I'll accept either title, I guess. Um, and as a shameless plug, uh, I invited a lot of you to my new Facebook page because Josh decided we needed to have Facebook pages for our two different organizations. So some of you are like, what is this, you know? Uh, in about two weeks, we get our own shop, which is really exciting. Um, so you don't have to come over to my house anymore, which is so awkward. Uh, not really, it's not that awkward. But um, just down the street, we'll have a shop. 
And um, for those of you who don't know much about uh, sort of what we do, we really have kind of two things going on. We have our auto ministry, which uh, some of you have had experience with, but probably the majority of you have had more experience with our actual repair uh, shop. The auto ministry has a lot more to do with people who are low income, have a documented hardship. It's a lot of how we interact with the community here um, by giving away cars with no interest, uh, giving cars way under what they're worth. I did probably $1,500 uh, worth of work in, in the last month just through that ministry fund uh, for people all over, Denton, Dallas, all over. And this is just free work, basically, repairs, cars, things like that. But we're separating those two so that people can actually understand what's up. And so many of you college students who pretend like you're poor uh, don't come and access the auto ministry. Instead, we make a lot of money off you by telling you parts on your car are broke, but they're really not. Um, just how we fund the auto ministry. That's what a mechanic shop does. They tell you things that are wrong that aren't really wrong. Um, so, that's the Two Brothers Automotive on the one hand, which is the auto shop, and then our Metro uh, Auto Ministry, which is uh, the other one. And so just so you know that. But if you have friends or people who are really struggling, kind of going through a hard time, uh, our auto ministry is funded by our church, guys. And we will eventually take up, um, we, we've had someone in our church uh, graciously offer us $6,000 of matching fund money uh, for us to raise. If we can raise $6,000, they will match the $6,000, and that will all go into our auto ministry, which is just great. Because that means more cars for people who don't have them. That means more repair work for people who can't afford them. And a lot of the folks that are coming to us, they're literally grounded. They, they can't move anywhere. I mean, they, they, they're, they've lost their jobs, they whatever, because their car doesn't work. And so it's a big deal for us to get them back on the road and, uh, and able to work. So anyway, that's a, a big part of, of what we're doing up here in, uh, in Denton. And I think that's just one of our cool ministries that we've done for a long time. But hey, now it actually has a name and a cool logo that Josh created because he's so awesome. All right, so with that said, uh, whenever I get into a car, okay, and it doesn't start, which is a lot of cars, right, because that's usually when people call. It's not preventative maintenance people are worried about. They're worried about, okay, my car doesn't start. I've tried it 100 times as if that was a good idea, and it doesn't start. Pretty early on in the process, I can gauge really within maybe four or five seconds whether it's a fuel issue or an electrical issue. Now, most people couldn't do that um, unless they've been working on cars for a long time. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression that I know everything about cars. When it comes to much more difficult things, like some of you have the tendency to ruin your timing belts, here's a public service announcement, okay? If you do not change the one thing in your car that ought to be changed besides fluids, which is called the timing belt, you will ruin your engine. Six of you, no, four of you have done this just in the last six months, all right? So the word is not getting around, so therefore I'm going to use my bully pulpit here to remind you that a timing belt change is due at 100,000 miles and then 200,000 miles. And if you have an interference engine, which literally means parts of your engine interfere with other parts, then you need to really do it between about 75 and 90,000 miles. And if you have a car right now and you have no idea whether... That, okay, wait a minute. I probably shouldn't say that because now you're going to think that I'm just encouraging you to come to my shop to get that work done. Um, I'm just going to say you need to get that figured out. All right? That's all I'm going to say. That's it. Public service announcement. Unless you want to trash the engine of your car, completely figure it out. Anyway, I'm not near as good at diagnosing timing belt issues. My partner in crime, Noah, who's a much better mechanic than I am on his worst day, is. So there are some things on cars I can figure out pretty quickly. There are some things on cars I can't. I've noticed something about being around car guys. You've got really 
three types of car guys probably isn't fair to say. It's more like you have three modes of car guys talking. So in some modes, they're this way, and some modes are this way. And here are the three modes. You ready? The first one is people who actually know what they're doing. They just know. It's intuitive. It's like me getting in a car and being able to figure out really quickly whether it's an electrical or a fuel problem. It's really, really quick. It's not a big deal. It's not, uh, you know, uh, very hard. And I for sure know when I spray a little bit of starter fluid into the air breather and your car starts, well, we know we had a fuel issue and not an electrical issue, right? Then you've got people who talk, okay? And then you've got people who talk about what they know. These are the three modes, and I won't say types of mechanics because we all get into that, I think. I have spent plenty of my time talking about stuff I don't know, talking about stuff I know, all to avoid having to actually do anything because I don't know what I'm doing, all right? But this is really interesting because I think we can apply this same model to our understanding and reading of Scripture. We have people who know, and in a lot of ways, um, when I was writing my dissertation uh, in order to get my PhD, I had a tendency to be very vague and very impressive with myself. And the irony of that is I'm dealing with someone who's very famous in the sociological world, who's very well known among people in our small little bubble. And here I am trying to impress him. And one day he finally, and this, you got to understand this guy, he cuts like a sailor, he's short, he doesn't have just this, you know, real uh, presence about him physically, but everything else, mentally, he's just got this presence. And he just says, when are you going to figure out that the smartest, most knowledgeable people in their field are the people who don't need to show it? And this is the start of our conversation. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and that sent us down a very new path in our relationship. But he was really right. He's like, oh, listen, the people who I know who are best in their fields of academics don't need to prove it to anybody. They just know they, know they have that security. It's the people talking and trying to prove themselves that don't have that. And that really changed a lot of my writing uh, style, even though it didn't change my personality because I'm still very much one that likes to impress, which is my own insecurity. So. But as we read through 2 Timothy 2.14, uh, you're going to kind of see the same sense in Paul's uh, uh, discussion about these false teachers to Timothy. And Paul, uh, it's assumed, was sort of at the end of his life when he wrote this. Those of you who are looking for Timothy, one of the cool tips that I heard a long time ago was all the T's are together. You know? Did you know that? They're all together in the, in the, New, in the uh, New Testament, right? So just find any of the T's and you know, the other T's are going to be somewhere nearby. Isn't that a cool tip, right? Right? How many of you are going to always remember that? This is the one thing you're always going to remember from here on out, from this whatever I just said, or what I've ever said, is that all the T's are together. Okay? So, uh, I don't know why that, that is, but I still can't find it. So, this is, it's New Testament, right? Um, all right. So, 2 Timothy 2, 14, and we're actually going to read a lot of this text. And I want to do a couple things as we read through this. And that is, if you have a question about a word or a thought... Uh, ask it, just interrupt and ask it, and that's fine. And if it's off topic, I'll ignore you and move on, and I'll just tell you it's off topic. But in the case that it's actually on topic and it would be really helpful to understand exactly what's being said, that's totally helpful as we read through this. More of kind of an interactive reading of this scripture because it's very easy for us to just glaze over and be like, okay, I've heard those words, I've heard this passage. I think if you're like me, what you do is you'll read a text of scripture, you'll locate one verse that you remember seeing, and that's like the only verse you remember from what you just read. That's not a very good way to read, right? Because that would be like reading a book and only remembering the one line you remember every time you read it. Like, probably not that great for comprehending what's actually going on. 
So if you're really going to try to understand Scripture, one of the things that's, I think, helpful is being able to kind of interact with it as you read. Like, stop, slow down, what was that, what did that mean, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So if you have questions, stop me, and uh, um, we will uh, try to explain that if it's uh, relevant to what we're going to be talking about. So anyway, Paul's older, uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the most uh, influential figures in the New Testament besides Jesus himself. He's writing to his young uh, or really not that young at this point, um, elder, probably elder uh, and pastor of Ephesus. And this is you know, uh, really kind of one of the major themes of actually both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. This is him telling Timothy how to deal with these people who come along and talk about a whole lot of stuff. All right? And so I want to start there. And by the way, this passage is a great one to, uh, to study and, de- and devote your uh, time with God too as well, because we're going to sort of sandwich this sermon series with the, this passage. Beginning, we're going to study it. At the end, we're going to talk about it. Because this is an- another one that it would be really good for you to uh, uh, kind of read through uh, and try to understand. Second Timothy 2 in uh, verse 14. So here we go. Keep reminding them of these things. Uh, I wish we could go back and tell you what these things are, but you could just read the first part of Timothy. Uh, for here, it's not... Uh, important other than to say he's just telling them the basic gospel. You've got to keep reminding them of the basic gospel uh, as it is he, he lays that out in uh, the first uh, two chapters. Warn them before God against quarreling about words because it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who it is, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay, some for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with these foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. Those who oppose them, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. It's really hard to read through this without getting super challenged as someone who likes to quarrel with people. Um, And this sermon was really tough to do this uh, uh, five minutes before church started. Um, (laughs) really challenging uh, in that time frame. Um, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without any love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. 
They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Genghis and Genghis opposed Moses, I don't know how to say their names. So. <laughs> Sorry, bad example. It's a Steve Brule reference. I shouldn't have said it. Um, so also, these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far. Because as is in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Be pre preach the word. Be prepared in season. And out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. All right, um, so a great passage, I think, to start off with and, uh, and to kind of... Um, intro this sermon series about really coming to appreciate uh, a right reading of scripture. For most of us, a right reading of scripture isn't even the problem. It's a reading of scripture. So again, I encourage you to start with the most basic level here is to go ahead and actually read some of the scripture. It's really an amazing idea, but myself included, for our generation, we just don't read scripture. Let's just be really honest about that. It's not that we're strange or weird or the only generation that's ever existed. One of the most miraculous stories in Israel is when Josiah discovers, rediscovers rather, the law. His whole generation had completely ignored everything that God had given them up to that point, And then one day discovered it as they were, it's kind of like Jumanji, the most recent Jumanji, right? They discovered Jumanji as they're cleaning out for their punishment. Okay, that wasn't a good reference. Um, but that was actually a pretty good movie. I liked it. And uh, so... You know, they find this book of the law, and it just startles them. I mean, it's just like, whoa, how did we lose this? Guys, we can have the same reaction. And even though it was too late for them because the generation was already too far gone, it wasn't too late for the remnant of people who followed Joseph into read, uh, Josiah rather, into rediscovering the book of the law. And so I think it's very important for us as young people to counter so much of the words that we're getting from all these other places, whether they be spiritual Christian places or not, with what the actual Bible says, the, the very word of God. And, uh, and that's tough in our day and age where we've more and more relegated the Bible to non, not really being applicable to much of what we do. And hopefully I can uh, explain against that and uh, encourage you to, to, to head down a different path there. So I want to say that the scripture 
uh, is useful, and so the entire title of this is just the useful scripture. That's it. The word is just taken from the text here. Uh, if you read the NRSV or the NASB, it's going to be profitable, but profit is a weird word in our capitalist environment, and so I think, you know, useful is better. Useful connects up with us anyway. Those of you who are kind of postmodern mindset, I'll only do what's sort of useful for me getting where I want to get and what makes sense to me. And so I like the word useful here, and I think it's a really important one uh, that we say that the scripture is useful. It's useful for two things here, and these are pretty high level, so they sort of seems to counter uh, my whole point in saying that they're useful, but because useful things tend to be pretty practical. But I'm going to do my best. Useful for two things. The first one is for knowing good slash God. Because as Christians, we believe in this really funny thing that there is no good that we can recognize and there is no doing good apart from God. And while we say that and believe it, and let me make a side note real quick. Part of what we're doing with this uh, series on the scripture is the first part, building belief. It's time for us, I think, as a young Christian culture to refocus on some core beliefs we have. Because we've rotated a little too far away from uh, the tradition of old and the rule of faith, and you have to believe this or that, into this kind of desert land of knowledge and belief. Where you can believe just about anything you want, so long as you say Jesus is Lord. And I think that makes sense in how we communicate, the problem is it doesn't make any sense in practice. If you believe Jesus is Lord, you're going to believe some core things about the very things that him and his lordship commanded us to do and told us about reality. So we've got to kind of come back to building a core of belief, and hopefully you'll agree with some of the things that I'm pulling out of the scripture. Uh, but more importantly than if you agree or disagree, you'll find those very core beliefs in the passages that we're uh, addressing as core belief that we ought to have that come directly from the Bible. And, and there's no real other source for them. And so that's one of the things that uh, this sermon series is really trying to get at, is building some beliefs, some core beliefs around us. And I preached a really confusing sermon um, about a month ago, which is pretty common for me. Um, but it, it was talking, or I was talking about how we have to kind of reconcile that there's a lot of things we believe, but don't truly believe them because we're not doing anything about them. Well, take that back to what I said in the beginning about car people who talk or talk about what they know, which in some ways is even worse, because then they at least sound like they know what, what they're doing, versus people who really know. The people who really know. And so what I want to say about the scripture is uh, that it's useful for knowing good, which is always going to be knowing God. Okay? Now... I'm going to unpack this a little bit, but if you go back to Luke 18 in this really kind of vexing passage where the young, rich young ruler, we're, we're, you know, we're, this is popular with us, uh, we, we know it, the rich young ruler comes and says, good teacher, teach me what I can do to get eternal life, and what's Jesus' response? Here's what you need to do. No, he says, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Only God is good. So it's very strange. kind of messes with our neat and dried understanding of the Trinity. Wait a second, you know, what's, what's happening here? And there can be some you know, kind of conversation about what exactly he's doing. My impression is he's doing two things. One is Jesus alone, okay, is it, is it meant to be the sort of perfection or ideal of who God is? God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in fact, it actually helps our view of the Trinity, which is a really weird word never used in Scripture. Um, but it reinforces the idea that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together are good, not just Jesus alone. 
But I think that's probably a little looking a little too much theologically into it. I think what he's really doing is he's, he's countering the rich young ruler's idea of good. Because he says, oh, you're a good teacher. And then Jesus goes and has this conversation with him about what goodness really is, which we'll talk about in a moment. But only God is good. Um, so the scripture is useful for us actually knowing good, which means for us actually knowing God. This last semester, we talked about the Holy Spirit and all the things the Holy Spirit does in us. But I want to be really clear, and I mentioned this last time, uh, last uh, week, as many of you were gone to winter camp, so I want to say it again. The Spirit does not, on his own accord, teach us anything of value. He teaches us through the Word of God. So one of the real movements, uh, challenging movements, that we talked about when we talked about... Um, uh, the Holy Spirit, and um, for those of you who were in the class with us, was the movement called Pietism. And Pietist movement was a really popular movement throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Um, and without going too much into it, the belief was that what really matters isn't so much my systematic doctrine, it's me doing good, being good. And the Spirit will uh, inhabit me through these good works, which many of them were traditional religious good works. The Pietists were some of the very... Uh, uh, kind of the latter group of pietists were some of the ones that ultimately uh, encouraged the suffrage, uh, not suffrage movement, the, um, sorry to compare these two, but the temperance movement. <laughs> They're not the same. One was good, one was bad. Yeah. Oh, does not as own, own accord, uh, you know, teach us of anything of value apart from the word of God. It's the same thing that Jesus doesn't do anything on his own apart from what he sees the Father doing. It's actually the exact same idea. Um, so we have to be very careful not to go out into this world of experience thinking that the Spirit's going to teach me all these significant things about God apart from what the Word already tells us about who he is. Spirit's role is actually, if you remember, when we very first started talking about him, a floodlight ministry as... Um, uh, Michael Houston, one of the other older guys, I don't remember, uh, says it, it just simply shines a light on who Jesus is, which we get from the Word. So it's part of the reason we're doing this sermon series right now is we're trying to balance out this tendency in Christians to think, well, I've got the Spirit within me, so I'm going to learn all these spiritual insights. And if you really look back through interpretation throughout the ages, one of the real big problems the early church fathers had, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, uh, mostly Greek church fathers, is they believed themselves to be super spiritual and super capable of reading into scripture things that were beyond the original meaning of the text. It's called allegory. And we'll talk about that methodology. But still today, we have Christians who read into the text in ways that are based on spiritual understanding and insight. Which is very simple to how Gnostics, uh, if you've heard of Gnosticism, uh, read into scripture. That you need special insight, spiritual insight to understand what the scripture says. Uh, and uh, I'm not so sure that's uh, a belief that we need to have. I believe that we are able to know good and know God no matter who we are, no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how smart we are, no matter how uh, well-read we are, the Scripture is and always will be for the common person. And, uh, and that's very important for us. So you say only God is good. Okay, well, what about creation? I'm about to move through this a little bit quickly. Uh, isn't creation called good? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, everything is good uh, in its relationship to God and his purpose for it. So, of course, creation is good. I'm not trying to advocate some platonic idea of goodness that is 
Plato believed that there were true forms of things, and all the material things that we see are lesser forms that at best give us a fractured view of reality. Um, and that was going to dominate a whole lot of Christian thought early on in interpreting the scriptures, okay, which we'll see a little bit later on. I'm not talking about that. It's when I see songs that say all we need is God, I'm thinking, and breath, and food, people around us. I get uncomfortable because it kind of seems to be suggesting a platonic idea of things, like all we need is the essence of God, like no, creation itself is really good, and God meant for it to be good. And in, in accordance with him, it's a good thing. In fact, if you really think about this, guys, for a moment, and I hadn't really thought about this before I read Ian Proben's book, but if it was left up to the Greeks, we would never have scientific empir uh, empiricism as it is today. Because Greeks believed that the world was really not that interesting uh, as a, a form of study. It really wasn't that important. It's not until the Renaissance... Uh, humanist Christian church leaders of the Reformation decided, wait a second, creation is good in and of itself because God created it. It's worth studying. The reformers and even some of the early church fathers talked about creation as being the second book of God. Uh, meaning the Bible the first and creation the second. And this postmodern idea that science and, you know, and Christianity are kind of like at war if you read some of the best, even just non-Christian scholars out there, uh, they'll tell you that's just a really silly argument. Um, it's not ever been like that. It's only a popular perception that that's how it's been. Certainly we've had Christians who, you know, didn't believe that uh, the, uh, the earth was round or that, the, you know, uh, earth rotated around, but that doesn't mean that we had just as many who actually encouraged us to head in different directions. So by saying good, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not um, meaning that God in an essence or in a form is, is only good, but I'm saying the things that he's made, the creation itself, and I think some of you guys understand that, so I'm sorry that I'm going way too far with that. What about good people? Can't there be good people? Well, this is really challenging for a lot of us because we live in a day and age where with pluralism, and pluralism is not a bad thing, pluralism meaning a plurality of different views. In fact, again, if you were to go back and look at how Christian reformers influenced what, what structure we have today, it was guys like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes who were mentioning that we ought to have a state where the government doesn't mandate the religion. What a wonderful idea. Where did they find that idea? They found it in Jesus himself and in their spiritual readings of the text. Now, I'm not going to go too far into trying to prove that, you know, the early church fathers, who many of which were deists, were actually, uh, you know, theists. But for those who predated many of them, okay, and who thought through things, uh, uh, like the early church fathers and stuff, many of them saw in the scripture a reading of the world that allowed them to have a lot of the ideas they had. And one of them was that you can't quarrel all the time. Because if everybody starts talking about what they believe, everybody's going to be fighting nonstop. And that's what you see with Catholics and Protestants and Muslims of the 17th, 18th, 19th century. They just all fought each other and put each other to death for being a... Can you imagine a day and age where Catholics are putting to death Protestants and Protestants are putting to uh, death Catholics just because they're Catholic or Protestant? Think about that for a moment. Like, half our church is probably split. Maybe not quite half, but... Maybe a third or something, a long Catholic upbringing, Protestant. Uh, but that's really crazy. But the very people who introduced the idea of pluralism and all these different viewpoints 
were uh, the reformers themselves, and, uh, and with society, they kind of thought about that. But anyway, I say all that to say we have this problem still with deciding, okay, well, now who's good? We all generally think we're pretty good, okay? And I'm going to get to that in just a moment, but what about good people? What do we do about uh, good people? Aren't, isn't it possible for people to be good apart from their reading of the Scripture or knowing God? Well, that's another salvation type thing that I don't really want to go into. But let me just say it like this. Yeah, it's possible for people to be good outside of church and outside of knowing God, just like it's, it's uh, possible for people to be within the church who know God to be bad. I mean, what is good and bad at the end of the day? I don't, how do you define that? One of the biggest problems we're going to have with our postmodern definition of good is nobody has a good definition for it, which is ironic, right? Can't don't have a good definition of good. So um, what do we do with that? I mean, is it that we're these warring people who have some good about us, some bad about us, and if you're like 75% good, you're better than someone who's 25% bad? Uh, what? 25% good? I guess if it's all a comparison game, that's exciting. What's the cutoff mark? And how much of your goodness has to do with you as an individual, or you grew up in an area where goodness was just sort of more assumed of you? <laughs> uh, this is tricky. What do we do with that? Well, I think at the end of the day, it goes back to what we talked about with the Holy Spirit, that those of us who are apart from God are at this constant war between bad and good within us. And we may be winning that war at times or winning it in the long run, but apart from God, is that really good? That we're 60% good and 40% bad? Can we really call that good? And I think that's, that's a really challenging thing because in Christ we're not fighting that same battle. The battle has been won and, uh, and I think it's important to, uh, to ask some of those questions. So then um, I think trying to find good apart from God is what I would call a death march. It's the same problem that Adam and Eve had is they wanted to try to find goodness apart from God sort of within themselves, but apart from God. And I'm not into making this argument that's been made for a long time about whether we're naturally good or naturally bad. If you're reformed and you believe we're totally depraved, good for you. Proud of you. Um, I don't believe that, so whatever. Uh, I think it's much easier to say there's a mix and it's weird and apart from God, we're in some trouble. Um, but, but, but being apart from God is a death march. Because no matter how good you become... Okay, according to societal standards or, or according to just basic standards of goodness that we maybe all agree with based on our conscience, you've missed getting to be how you were created to be in right, terms of righteousness. And by death march, certainly that can mean actual death here in terms of making bad decisions. It can mean a spiritual death. Uh, and it can even just mean you end up having lived a good life, and you cease to exist and fail to get this wonderful gift of eternal life where true goodness will truly be discovered. Which actually, in the long run, doesn't even make much sense because if your whole purpose of your life was to be good, and goodness at some deeper level has to do with knowing God, why wouldn't you just pursue it all the way? Why did you only want to do 60%? That doesn't make sense. Go the full way. Unless your definition, of course, of good is very different than God's. And then that's when we get into trouble. And so trying to find goodness apart from God is really kind of a death march. And however you think about it, is it possible for there to be good people? Of course. We meet them day in and day out. So to say that that's not true would be to ignore the very things that we see 
Is it possible that people apart from God are more good than some of us? Yeah, go listen to what C.S. Lewis says about the cranky neighbor down the uh, hall who has always been cranky, and she's terrible, but she just became a Christian, and so she's slowly growing. Uh, And the nicer neighbor down the hall who judges her, you know. So, uh, uh, well, yeah, you got to get into that. That's that's a, a comparison game. So there's no good in, uh, in our current kind of uh, method of talking about goodness. So here's the application here. Or, well, let me back up a little bit. Here's the belief for this first one. So the, the first point is so much useful for knowing God. Uh, the scripture is useful for knowing God slash, uh, excuse me, knowing good slash God. And if we're honest, a lot of us, that's really what our pursuit in life is. It's we want to know what's good, what's beautiful, what's true. And the scripture allows us to discover those very things. But the belief here, and I think this is far more important than writing the title of this point, is his word is an authority that cuts through all the other words. Okay, when the reformers talked about sola scriptura, or solely scripture, only scripture, it's probably better to say prima scriptura, primary because when you say sola, it makes it kind of think that the scripture is the only authority. And that's gotten people into some real trouble, for instance, when they believe that, you know, uh, Joshua 10 talks about, you know, the, sand, the sun standing still. So that must mean that the sun rotates uh, or, you know, that the, 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 the earth never moves, that kind of thing. That gets us into some problems. But the point here is that his word is the authority that cuts through all the other words. And this is where things get pretty challenging because if we're honest with ourselves, that's not how most of us really live. We have varying competing authorities, and the Bible is just one of those. And, and that's going to always get us into trouble as Christians. Hebrews 4.12, as many of you are uh, familiar with, you know, the word of God is active and alive. It cuts with, uh, as a double-edged sword, thoughts, attitudes, all those things. The, the, the word of God uh, is absolutely the authority that cuts through everything else, gets to the bottom and to the core of everything else. Now, I say everything else. I, again, want to be really clear. In, in, in the past, we've had this allegorical interpretation of Scripture that has been countered by a very wooden, literalistic understanding of Scripture, which is just as damaging. Because when we read about the corners of the earth or other things like that and think that the Bible somehow is making an authoritative statement on the shape of our world, we're missing the context there. Just because certain biblical authors thought wrong things about the world because the Bible isn't a scientific proof doesn't mean we have to go and believe the same stuff. Now, of course, that begs the question, well, at what point is that separated? Which hopefully we'll talk about as we move forward. But for all intents and purposes, for all the deep questions about goodness, beauty, and truth, the scripture is the authority that cuts through all the other words. And that is one of the most fundamental beliefs that a Christian has to have. Because everything else falls apart if you don't. And and I'm here inviting you uh, to answer whether you really live that out. Are you the person who knows that? Or are you a person who talks about it? Or talks about knowing it. Because you got to be the person that knows it. Otherwise, it really isn't going to have any kind of formative, uh, uh, powerful influence in your life. And that's why I want to get to this thing that Ian Proven always talks about, which I love. 
And that, that's that uh, if the word doesn't bite, it's not doing what it was intended to do. And again, I don't mean bite. I mentioned this last week as like a dog biting you. The word, the word shouldn't you know, be this like terrible, infectious experience each time. I like to think about this more like a cat kind of nibbling at you, you know, when you're playing with it and you thought everything was cool and you were having fun. And then all of a sudden the cat just goes crazy and like takes an entire finger in his mouth. It doesn't hurt that bad, but at least kind of wakes you up a little bit. All right? Yeah? Oh, it's actually a quote from me because I'm that cool. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I mean, he, that's not how he says it, but uh, Ian Proven talks a lot about how uh, in our modern day reading of the scripture, it's lost its bite. It has no ability to bite back. And so we read it without an understanding of either what it's saying or what we believe. Either way, it's not going to bite. Because if we read it and miss what it's actually saying, we'll, we'll, we'll fit into anything we believe. Or if we read it and don't realize that we're fitting it into what we believe, we don't recognize the things that we uh, already assume about it, it won't bite because we've already neatly packaged it into the one verse that I remember from that entire section, and that's the one that's really the important one to focus on after all because it's useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, correcting. We teach this and focus on Jesus. It's really important. But without the context of it, it's kind of like just, well, use it as a tool to do some of these cool things. And so it's so important that the scripture has the ability to bite back. And if, if you read the scripture and it doesn't bite back, either you're not listening to what it's saying or you're not listening to what you're saying. One of the two. Because it was meant to bite back. We need a parable-style reading of the scripture again. What I mean by that is when Jesus told parables, people were pissed. Just look. Every time he gave a parable which I wish I could be as good as Tim or really anyone probably at parables. But my mind tends to think more in objective, you know, not uh, story type ways, which I'm working on. Um, but he gave parables and people knew immediately who he was talking about and were pissed because what he was saying bit. And if it doesn't bite us, we've missed it. <laughs> or we've missed what it is we believe about what it's saying. Scripture is going to bite. It's going to bite because apart from God, we're, we come up with our own ways of doing good. And some of them are, are from our, the deep essence of who God is, but we haven't quite recognized them. Or they're just wrong ways of going about goodness that don't coincide at all with God's plan for us. But either way, the scripture redirects that authority. It cuts through and is the authority of all the other words around us. No, I don't necessarily think it's always a negative thing. So when my cat bites me, it's kind of funny. Um, and it's sweet, and it's endearing. And sometimes we just need to be, really? I mean, come on. Y'all don't have, your cats are too young or something. Because, I mean, I only have one cat that bites hard. The rest of them, they're not that, they're just, you know. Okay, it's too bad of an analogy. I'm sorry. I told you I'm not good at storytelling. I'm not good at analogies. Don't take it too far. I don't think it needs to bite in a negative way. In fact, most of what I read in the scripture is good news gospel stuff. It's going to change how we think about something. It's good news. It's not, I mean, it might immediately sound kind of bad, only it bad in that it changes how I thought about it. But long run, it's good stuff. It's not like Jesus went around making people mad for the sake of making them mad. That's what I do. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he made people think through things so that they could recognize this way better way of looking at the world. 
which was the true way of looking at the world, which is we have a good God. He's looking out for us. He's going to empower us to do all these things he expects us to do. All of that is such better news than I'm some human island trying my best to, among competing words and competing authorities, uh, be better than everybody else around me or make a difference in this world that seems uh, unchangeable. This is all much better news. The question is whether it's true or not. It's way better news. It's just we've got to decide whether it's true. So we've got to come back to that kind of parable-type reading in Scripture, okay? And, uh, and that is that, uh, that we, and, and, you know, I'll talk more about this. I mean, that's the lowest level of application I can do right now. But as we move forward, I'm just kind of preparing you to think through, we're going to talk about how you do that. I mean, how do you really read the Scripture in a way that, uh, that it, uh, you know, it bites, okay? Uh, so that was only the first point, so I've got five minutes for the second point, which is fine, actually. I'm, I'm great with that, because that was really my main point. Uh, the second point, you're, you're, some of you are like, I have ten points. How does that work? Uh, yeah, that's lack of structure. I'm sorry. I'm, to be honest, I, I'm taking this preaching class, and, but I haven't listened to it in like a month and a half. So uh, <laughs> I feel like I got a lot of good feedback on like two sermons ago. People were like, oh, that was so clear. It was so good. because I like, just listened to the class. <laughs> but I haven't listened in like a month and a half, so I need to get back on that. Oh, thank you, right? You're always so encouraging, you know, to me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's also useful for doing good. And what's, I think, so interesting about our definitions of good is that we're totally cool with being good, but that being good is often separated from actually doing anything good. Because <laughs> if we're naturally imbued with goodness by just being top of the food chain, and as smart as we are, then we don't really actually have to do anything good to be good. We're just naturally good. And that's one of the things that really strikes me about a lot of definitions of goodness that I've read apart from the biblical narrative is they don't necessarily have to do with doing good things as much as the essence of who you are is good and you just sort of have to recognize that and realize it to be awoken. There's no sin that needs to, you know, be driven away because at the end of the day, what is sin? It's sort of just a lack of knowledge about how amazing we really are. It's kind of the humanist manifesto, really, if you think about it. And humanism is not a bad thing. The reformers came out of the humanist movement. And so it's important to recognize that. But certainly at its fullest extent, like so many other uh, idols, they become very, very dangerous when we place those words in authority over the biblical words, which come directly from God himself. So, it's exactly what Paul's talking about here in uh, verse 5. He says, they have a form of godlessness, but deny its power. Exactly, godliness. What did I say? Godlessness, yeah. Oops. Um, that happens too. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, godliness, but, de- but, but deny its power. Which is, is really, in essence, saying they have an idea of what ought to be good about themselves, but deny that there's any power apart from themselves that actually makes them good. I'll just be good. And this definition, by very nature, lends itself towards talking about what you know and talking without actually knowing goodness. It's by nature. Definition just does. And if that's a little uh, kind of out there, what I'm basically just saying is when we already believe we're good, there's no real impetus for us to do much good. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every, I've already said the point that, uh, you know, just because you're apart from Christ doesn't mean you're not doing anything significant, doing anything good. 
All I'm simply saying is it's a very different way of looking at this animal, and the scripture absolutely refutes that. Not in the reformed total depravity type way, but a recognition that at your best, at your best, you can accomplish nothing apart from God. Of good, lasting, however you want to think about that. And that is incredibly offensive uh, to me uh, and should be to you. It should bite. Because I do a whole lot for my day-to-day trying to accomplish good in and around me. And sometimes I'm doing that on mission with God, but a lot of times I'm doing it on mission with me. And God says, you've accomplished nothing. Can I work in it still? Sure, but you've done nothing. And this entire passage is talking about the word equipping you for every good work that is meaningful. It just says that. Every good work. The scripture gives you the ability to do the very good you're attempting to do on your own. And it has the ability to do that. Just is going to. And we have often criticized that or at least reframed it. It'll, do, it'll teach you how to do all the spiritual good stuff out there. But in terms of anything that's really kind of at the baser level of good, what does it really have to, uh, to say? So here's the belief, and then uh, I'm going to wrap up. The belief here is his word makes us good. And this is really crazy. Uh, this is at the heart of the whole idea that you can't earn your own salvation. Our best day is to work hard to simply surrender and accept all these truths that we've been given. But his word makes us good. Now, there is something amazingly mysterious and wonderful about this. Daryl Johnson, who's doing the preaching class, uh, has said something that has just absolutely stuck with me. The word he used was that the word of God is performative, meaning it's always performing in us. Uh, But I liked his analogy a whole lot better, and he goes to Ezekiel uh, 37 where the dry bones become flesh. And he simply says, what God does here is he speaks words into these dry bones that have no life, that have no intention, no ability to even respond, and he simply enlivens them with his word. Changes drastically their state of being with simply his word. And this is one of the most important and probably hard to grasp mysteries of the scripture is it actually changes who we are. It, 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 the word itself. It's not the constant practice of the word or application. Now certainly there's something to say about obeying and working hard to kind of implement these things. But the word itself, when accepted, fundamentally changes who we are. At least that's what the scripture claims to do. If you don't believe that, that's okay. Admit you don't believe it, because that's a great starting place. Because it's a whole lot better that you talk about and pretend like you do, and you not live in any of it, than for you just to come out and say, I don't actually believe that. I've read the scripture, and it seems to be dry, wooden, and it has no change in my life. The significant changes have come from a counselor. They've come from life situations and circumstances. They've come from me just maturing naturally. Be honest with yourself. And whether you really can testify in your own life that the word of God has fundamentally changed who you are. It's performative. That's amazing. Speaks life into dry bones. Who can do nothing. I mean, we've done nothing. There's no acceptance of that. Uh, It has the ability to to change us. And that's really crazy. So, uh, one of the, the, the applications to this... And it actually is kind of another belief. 
we have got to recognize that every core issue we deal with in life and in our jobs and in our relationships is dealt with at the most fundamental level by the word of God. And if it's not directly spoken to, some underlying core issue or uh, important detail, the scripture does have encouraging and empowering words for us. And some of us are just basic step forward here. And, and, and I'm really talking right now to most of you adults who are not in college because it's in adulthood that I think we lose this. One of the things that makes working 40 hours a week is so depressing is because at least in college we had all of these examples of the word kind of manifesting itself and we were changing and it seemed applicable to all the environments we're in. Guys, it was applicable to all the environments we are in because we were in the environment where it's most easily seen as applicable. It's like trying to take chemistry out into the world and excite people about chemistry uh, and you get excited about it only when you're around fellow chemists. Well, uh, hello, that's not going to work. There are already a bad audience for you, okay? I just remember because I was seeing Josh and I was looking at Melissa and how much they, uh, well, Melissa in particular, uh, uh, teaching the New Orleans kids about chemistry and making them so excited about it. I just had that moment. Hi, Melissa. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, um, it's really hard for those of us adults to see the scripture as speaking to these core issues we have in our job and with our mental health and with our uh, understanding of success and with our trouble balancing relationships and feeling alone and all these other things. And yet it is the thing, it is the thing that will deal with all those issues and not at some cerebral level, but will actually change fundamentally how we're looking and how we're acting in regard to the issue that we're having. And that's just crazy. I mean, it really, really is crazy. And uh, I'm hopefully presenting it in a way to you that uh, you're questioning whether you believe that or not, because these things are not easy to believe. In some ways, uh, the definition of faith and maturing in faith is growing in your belief of these very things as you've experienced and experienced and experienced. And remember, Israel constantly forgot what God had done and constantly needed reminders. Well, guys, we're no different in that sense of needing reminders of how the word has been really performative in our life. And when you graduate college immediately after, it's very difficult. You begin to question all those experiences you had in college. Was that real? Was God really active? Blah, blah, blah. You're in the desert. You're in the wandering. And for a lot of you uh, adults who aren't in college, it's time uh, you kind of, we kind of, okay, we, because I am absolutely in this boat, step up our game here. It's really embarrassing. And I'm just going to write, I'm going to read this. I don't normally read stuff, but I just wrote this and I feel like it's really important as a challenge for those of you who aren't in college. It's embarrassing for us adults after focus how little we study and, uh, and know the word. We rely a lot on each other, but we are only as good as the amount of God's word that has been written on our hearts. And so if we're talking to people about advice and getting advice and, you know, and you're getting advice from me, I'm mixing in all kinds of things that both God written on my heart and probably some psych book and social book and other opinion I heard along the way. But as adults, we've got to be the leaders in the church of, of really allowing the word to be written on our hearts in a way that we express the truth about our situation. And what's going on? It's grown-up time. We've got to apply the word in, in ways that we thought maybe that wasn't ever going to happen. But most often what we do instead is just say, yeah, it's probably not talking about that. It's probably talking about just this stuff in here. Uh, and so we narrow our understanding of the applicability of the word. So your homework is to read John 1, 1 through 18. And the uh, sermon next week is simply to uh, the, the idea of where do we start with this word? 
Like, where would we start? Because, and, and I don't mean certainly like what book of the Bible do you start with. I mean like where do we start in, in, uh, in terms of a way of reading that builds our beliefs, that we question our beliefs, that, we, that it bites back for us, that we read it appropriately in a way that's faithful to the text itself. And that's really the goal of, of this next week, but um, I, I want you to read through John 1, 1 through 8. I apologize for going so long. I really didn't intend to go uh, so long, but, um, but I did and it happened, so... Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.